Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 348, is recorded live November 2nd, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where I think people still are diving. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you. Glad to be here. And we also have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? Just great, thank you. How are you doing? I am doing wonderful. We are to Thursday, which is one day before Friday. So the week Football is... Football night. Is it is it football? Yeah, Edward Berg is in the finals. I've been going to those uh, Friday night games, uh-huh. and uh, so far successful. And for those who don't care about it, Lakeshore <laughs> beat St. Joe last week, which was Ooh. by the skin of their teeth, but 19 seconds ago. Yeah, that that's a for those outside the area. That's a pretty big rivalry. There, oh, two large, time. well-funded schools, so it's always a good yep. battle. Well, 37-yard field goal. That's one of those professional yeah. field goals, you know. 19 seconds to go, and they won. Nice. 12 to 10. Good game good. if you didn't. Good game if you didn't care who won. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mention uh, Lakeshore and St. Joe because this last weekend we had a the Western Michigan Robotics Invitational, and uh, our team. And this this is more of a practice event. It's not as serious as all the other ones. We got we went from nine robotics students. Up to like twenty six. It's it has, we, the numbers are still coming in. So the team has grown quite a bit, and it's a way of getting students introduced to what an event's like. And we went up there, and the team ended up being uh, seated eighth. Uh, was the seventh captain, and got to pick two teams, and we actually picked St. Joe and Lakeshore to join us on our alliance. So kind of goes Woo-hoo. goes together with the. Uh, uh, the football game. See, in robotics, we get to work together. So that was, uh, that was fun. And the, the kids had a good time. Uh, the robotics is great from our perspective because we're always looking for some entrepreneurial kid to go out there and build a nice ROV for us. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm keep twisting their arms. Uh, uh, someday we're going to be able to convince one of them to get into that. I mean, cause the season, once this, once the season's over with, then they could be doing that. Now you got 26 and, uh, for burying now? Yes. And yeah. you're going to be more busy than you were last year, which was very busy. Yes. Well, it's it's because we, we always said, oh, because our team is so small that we've got it tougher. And I I don't know. <laughs> I think it's a little tougher being large because, let's see, we had we have seven returning team members. So 19, it's their first year in robotics. And of those 19... There are only maybe four who aren't freshmen. Wow, is that one of those? Be careful what you wish for. Yes, it is. It certainly is because, and I, I'm betting that none of them listen to the podcast. But there are some awful immature freshmen on the team this year, so we've got to bring everybody up, and we're slowly working on it. But uh, that will take some time. Well, it'd be nice maybe to have some parental support that you don't have or mm-hmm. you didn't have. You know that might be very nice. Yeah, we we've got a couple coming in. We'll have to see how it all shakes out. But most of our fans did not come to listen to to, to robot or sports talk. They want to hear about some diving. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Thank everybody who we have in the chat room. We have uh, Eric and TK. Derek is in there. So our first article is, is sim- I, I call this one a follow-up, the changing faces of the kittyweight. If you remember, we covered it before, and there was some concern about uh, the kittyweight during uh, one of the hurricanes. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, but there's, but they've had a, a storm since then, and it says uh, Cayman's most famous shipwork, the USS Kittyweight, 
was pushed further on its side as storm swells swept through the Seven Mile Beach Marine Park over the weekend. The wreck was left positioned at a 45-degree angle after being tipped over in rough conditions associated with Hurricane Nate earlier this month. With Tropical Storm Philippe bringing swells from similar direction this weekend, dive industry leaders feared the wreck could be pushed onto a nearby coral reef. In reality, the weekend weather may have helped make the wreck and the reef more secure, said Jason Washington of the Ambassador Divers and I Dive blog. Mr. Washington, who swam out to survey it on Sunday, says is now lying on its side in the sand. He said it did not appear to have damaged the corals that shifted position once again as she has healed over on her port side, she has started to fill with sand. She has more surface area on the seafloor and actually a lot more stable. It's going to take a massive storm to move the ship now. As with all shipwrecks, he said, the weather would have its way with the Kitty Wake over time, slowly revealing different sides of the wreck, creating different opportunities for divers and photographers. What we'll witness now is a slow deterioration of the wreck, and eventually she'll make her way down to a debris field. The moment she went underwater, she started her journey of returning to the earth molecule by molecule. Is it exciting to witness the changes of the Kitty Wake? We have seen three changes in the last few months, and we will see more. He said the main concern was to protect the reef at the neighboring sand chute dive site. And that is it. All I know is the pictures that you have here are great because it shows the before, the during, and now. And she is laying on her side. Uh, to me, that would take a heck of a lot of storm surge to move that. Yeah, but they, they've they moved it somehow. So that this makes you think that, well, if you look, it almost appears to be on a ledge, doesn't it, in that, that one picture? I think it's just the angle of the shot. Oh. Because that, the second picture, she's not totally laying down. And then that last shot, she is flush on the sand. Yeah. yeah. And I don't see how anything else is going to move it. You know, as long as you got that, that keel axis, you got like a fulcrum. She's, there's no keel action there. That keel looks like it's totally free. So you'd have to pick that whole boat up and shift it up and down for it to go anywhere, I would think. Mm-hmm. Well, also, I think what will happen is you get that where there's less opportunity for things to get underneath it. And I, I think the action will actually do the other th- the, the opposite, which will cause it to settle even deeper. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how that comes out. In the chats, uh, they have somebody who said, uh, uh, as I have said before, the Kitty Wake should have been properly anchored. Uh, Mr. Washington just confirmed that she shifted again, but apparently no damage to the coral. I will ask a few questions. Have we seen anything that size sitting loose in the sand in the ocean that couldn't be moved by waves or turbulence? So, yeah, he, he doesn't seem to be a happy camper about it. Well, I'm curious. I, I see the article or the item he wrote, and it's like properly anchor. How are you going to do that? Well, you're going to anchor it like you would, you know, if it was on the surface. You, you, you know, pull. she's on the side right now. I mean, how how do you anchor when she's on her side? Would you put an anchor off the the bow and one off the stern? You know, just kind of stretch it. And I mean, looking at the first picture that had an anchor off the bow, that seems to be gone now. Oh, did it in the? I couldn't remember. Yeah, take a look at the first picture. You see one on the bow, and if you look down by the keel and the nose, you'll see another anchor or another uh, anchor line. Oh, yeah, you're right. So and then on the one when she's almost to the bottom, you can see where the line must have broken because there's no tension on it. It's laying in the sand under the nose. Yeah, so she and may then have. On the, yeah, the last shot, it's just laying loose on the, all the way down to the keel and off into the sand. Yeah, so maybe they did anchor it. That's a huge fish down there too. Did you see that one? The the one off on the on the right the, the right side there. Yeah, that must be a huge fish. Yeah, because you, you you think of it, unless the perspective's playing with you, but that's uh, got to be fairly large. Yeah. And as always, we will have uh, show notes so you can follow along, as do our Patreon supporters and those in the chat room. Wow. The I next- like that first. I was going to say, I like that first picture, though. It gives you a wonderful perspective of how deep that is. And it's not that deep. When you look at the, the superstructure, you can almost see the surface. Yeah. yeah it, so does it, how deep was it, do you know? Because I don't. Well, let's see if we can find that out. So this is the USS Kid Awake. And with a great big book of everything, the Internet. 
We should have the re- results. It's 58 feet deep at the bottom. So that's at the bottom. And that, so uh, when she's sitting up like that, you probably are within, what would you say, 20 feet of the surface? I was thinking that because we know at 50 foot, you, you're going to wreck anything out here in the big lake of our lake. So Lord knows what you're going to do in a hurricane. Oh, yeah. Well, you could have troughs that are 20 or 30 feet down. Yeah. Yeah, so this, they probably had done some sort of research and figured out that people really want to go to that depth, and also maybe it had to do with time, time to the wreck. Well, I'm sure people are going to be watching it, and I'm interested to see what happens during the next storm. And then uh, we have uh, another one. This one's out of the Dive Photo Guide. They have a video of an octopus mysteriously walking on the beach in Wales. They said in a scene straight out of the Halloween horror flick, dozens of octopus were spotted emerging from the ocean and crawling up the Welsh beach. A spooky sight occurred three nights in a row at New Quay Beach in uh, Caringdigiton in West Wales. And actually for a Welsh name, that was pretty easy. Uh, Footage of the bizarre phenomenon was captured by Seymour, which runs a dolphin-watching boat trip. Brett Jones from Seymour first saw the odd behavior when he's coming back from the evening trip. It was a bit like the end-of-day scenario, he's told the BBC. We were probably about 20 to 25 feet on the beach, and I had never seen them out of the water like that. Jones tried to return the wandering cephalopods back to the sea, but some couldn't be saved and were later found washed up along the shore. We collected the ones that were totally out of the water and popped them back in at the end of the pier, hopefully saving them from getting stranded. But locals and scientists are speculating what possible reasons could be for the octopus behavior. One suggestion is that a recent storm could be the cause, and others that the animals were undergoing the scene science or the end-of-life stage characterized by aimless wandering around and diminished feeding. Would that happen to that many at the same time? That. I don't know. I just call that... This is quite interesting. I just call that late night. I do that now. <laughs> yeah, but you close the refrigerator, you don't wander as much. Yeah. Oh, they said diminished feeding. Oh, no, I don't have that problem. That's what I'm saying. If they like the refrigerator, you're good. <laughs> that's a that's an idea, and that's an invention I need to come up with, a timed lock. Well, that's interesting. I, I think that's... I'd like to... hope somebody gives us a follow-up on that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, last last year we were talking about the the birds, uh, certain type of animals up there in Alaska that were dying at an unusual rate. And now we have octopus watching, walking on the beach. Well, I've never heard of that. Have you? No. Well, I what I think it was is they were disturbed by the alien spacecraft that were down there, and they're just trying to get away, like any reasonable creature. That or they knew it was Halloween, right? Yeah, that too. Researchers locate two wrecked bombers from World War II. A team of scientists from Project Recover have located a World War II-era twin-engine bomber plane under the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Papua New Guinea. Sometimes researchers researching one plane will uncover clues to the location of another. Locals and divers are often aware of the location of other wrecks that have not been officially researched or documented. Such a wreck was described to the researchers while they looked for the plane they just found. Local residents informed them of the wreck of the Mangdang, oh, in Mangdang Harbor, not far from where the team was looking for the plane that they had found. This plane was the sixth one discovered, identified, and documented by the team since 2012. Project's recovery's stated goals provide closure by using the latest science and technology to locate the final resting places of Americans who have been missing in action since the last World War. The team researches plane wrecks by checking National Archives for any clues about missing planes. They then, uh, then they interview local citizens and veterans. Once they narrow their search area to 3.8 square miles or 10 square kilometers, they use sonar, thermal cameras, and underwater robots to search for the wreckage. In the process of researching for the first plane, locals inform them of the second plane that crashed in the same area. Records indicate the two planes were shot down during a battle in World War II. One of the B-52 bombers had a crew of six. All of them have been missing since that day. The other plane had a crew of six, but five members were captured by the Japanese. The six men and the crew went down with the plane. Twin-engine B-52 bombers were developed by the North American Aviation Company. The versatility soon made them standard for all American Air Force's B-50 or B-24 
55. Did I say 52s? I meant Yes, 20. you did. Uh, I kept. <laughs> it must be dyslexia. Uh, B-25s flew almost 10,000 missions in World War II, performing everything from bombing raids of photo reconnaissance. B-25s were part of the raid over Tokyo at the end of the war. The planes that Project Recover found took a little legwork from the team in order to properly identify. According to Kathy O'Donnell, who was an oceanographer with the University of Delaware was working with a team. The planes that crash in the ocean don't typically settle nicely and intact onto the ocean floor. The warplanes that the teams find usually have been damaged before the crash in the ocean. Then the impact of slamming in the surface of the water generally breaks a plane into more pieces. Then the seawater and ocean creatures take a toll in the structure of the planes for decades before researchers discover it. It takes training in order to be able to sort part of the plane after 70 years underwater. Researchers identify and document each of the wrecks they find. All the information gathered by the team for the planes they find is given the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, DPAA. They are responsible for repatriating the remains of fallen soldiers and notifying surviving family members. According to O'Connell, there are more than 73,000 U.S. service members that have not been accounted for from World War II. The recovery project hopes that their service can bring closure to the families and honor for the fallen, and then there's a few, little bit more in the article. Uh, I, w- I was hoping they'd have some photos. I'd like to see what the planes looked like. Yeah, especially after all that many years. And then we have uh, this one's a little bit of a follow-up as well. Uh, it's titled "The Seven Dive Watch Myths Debunked," uh, and the first one is the bezel is for measuring oxygen use. And this must be among non-divers. According to the article, the sole purpose of the timing bezel is to track the passing of an hour. The main way to check your oxygen levels is to use a submersible pressure gauge. The bezel can also be used to measure your total dive time, swim distance, surface intervals, and decompression stops. But until dive watches come with a pressure gauge complication, this watch is never going to tell you how much air you have left. <laughs> and then they have an uh, editor, editor's note who must be a diver because he says most Divers breathe compressed air that contains only 21% oxygen and 79% nitrogen. Truth in uh, advertising. Yeah. This, this is some Somebody probably gave them a little grief. Bright dials help with visibility. As a diver descends, the water absorbs a light spectrum from any dial. The color red absorbs first at just 15 feet, followed by orange and other primary colors. Fluorescent colors are the only way to keep your watch glowing at great depths. The legibility of dive watches underwater really comes down the contrast between a dial and the hands. A fail-safe is a black dial with a pronounced white hands. Now, I, I have to correct him on this one. It's not that you don't have red light at that depth. It's that you're not, that the red light from the, the light from the surface has been filtered out by the water. So you can see red light at any depth if you bring it with you. In darkness like that, and you had light to begin with, there's a luminescent dial. Can you see that? I've never really thought about that. At depth? Yeah, I believe you can. I, I, I thought I thought yes, you could, you too. Can. Yeah, you can. Yeah, because I've had some that did have, you just shine the light on them, and they kind of absorb the light and then glow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So A lot of the older ones were that way. And maybe that's not what they're saying, but that's how I interpret it, that's that the, the color had to do with what that it gets absorbed and that's not necessarily the case but also what they're saying is somebody saying is that the dials help with visibility maybe to the watch but not to anything else you don't know if anybody using their dive watch as a light <laughs> be a little tough uh, vented straps let your wrists breathe <laughs> i love that one i love that one yeah, the the common rippled rubber straps found in many dive watches only have a use underwater and on land is essentially useless, and the best way to offer wrist breathability is to get a strap with holes. The straps are designed to keep the watches tight and counteract the effects of water pressure. As a wetsuit compresses, the circumference of your wrist shrinks, and the strap ripple, ripples take up any slack to keep the watch tight on the wrist. I don't know if I've seen what they're talking about here. Is it kind of like an expanded... Uh, they used to have a weight belt like that, that when you went down it wouldn't get loose because it had... Um, it looked like ripple, riffles, ripples in there that had elastic bands. So when you went down and your suit compressed, mm-hmm. the band would make the uh, belt snug. So you don't have to, like, tighten it to the point where you cut off circulation. 
Yeah, when you get down 120 feet and it's on your ankles and you pull back up, <laughs> yes. with that adjustment like that, it compensated. We call that self-releasing weights. Uh, helium release valves offer more depth. The helium release valves do not allow a diver to venture deeper into the sea. They're simply to relieve an overpressure of helium inside the watch cases. Lovers of dive watch appreciate this particular innovation, but in theory it won't help you dive any deeper. And... Well, I think they're wrong here, too, because unless you're a uh, saturation diver, you're not going to get helium in, in the watch anyway, because that's only for being in a chamber at pressure. And, and of course, you've got to ha- be breathing a helium mix at that point. And then number five, you need to be more than 100 meters to dive. The Paddy Dive Organization st- states approximately 20 meters of depth to which open water certification Holders should dive with advanced dive master going to 40 meters. With this logic in mind, a 100-meter watch is more than double the depth required for diving. A 100-meter watch will be much slimmer and lighter than a timepiece with a larger and absurd depth. (laughs) Well, I have had a watch that had a 100 meters stamped on it and flooded it just swimming on the surface. So (laughs) not all, you, you can't believe everything that's stamped on the front of the dive watch. Does that count something for a bottom timer? As, as far as a bottom timer? Not right, I up? need to have it bigger as I go down or something? Yeah. I thought they, yeah, the deeper you go, the more pressure there is, so you need a bigger one. Yeah. M- more more volume, you know, the, to be compressed. And then uh, swinging your arms increases water pressure on your watch. Plenty of wearers are under the impression that swimming or swinging your arms adds additional pressure to your watch, but that is simply untrue. Any seasoned diver knows that swinging your arms actually decreases hydrodynamics, which will go on to deplete the tank's air more quickly. I don't even know where they're going here. Swinging your arms increases the water pressure on your watch. I mean, are they thinking that if you're at, say you're at, 20 meters and you swing your arms, it's like you're at 30 meters? Was that the thought? No, I just know they're meaning that the more active you are, you're going to use your tank of air more quickly, but I don't see where that has anything to do with the watch. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it does at all. <laughs> but, uh, wow. And then seven, all divers wear dive watches. With marketing teams lead consumers to believe that the dive watch is an essential piece of gear for any scuba diver, but in reality, most divers opt for a digital dive computer. Dive computer tracks depth, calculates nitrogen, decompression stops, and much more. With this in mind, there are still plenty of reasons to choose a traditional dive watch. You can calculate swim distance, safety stops, intervals, and it can be used as backup as anything that happens on your dive computer. More important, a dive watch represents a history of adventure and exploration. It carries memories and encourages the spirit of adventure. Brought to you by your local jeweler and dive watch company. I hit that $15 Timex that's waterproof to 100 feet. I've got that on my BC, and if I want to tell the time to come up, I look at my watch. Mm-hmm. After I look at my air gauge to see how much air I got yeah. left. Yeah. Well, it, this was sort of funny, though. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, kind of a little bit different uh, perspective. And some things I didn't even realize. I had uh, Some of those I hadn't thought of anybody having an opinion one way or the other. I'm just glad I know that vented straps let my wrist breathe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, because if, if you have those wrist gills, you don't want to keep them covered up. And then here's some potentially cool dive gear. This is out of the India Times. Meet RoboBee, a tiny drone that can fly, scuba dive, and even explode. Drones are usually thought of as flying machines. Typically, however, any machine that can remotely pilot it is a drone. But drones have typically been specialized machines that perform one function well. Now meet RoboBee, the all-around drone world. Uh, as you can see, this drone can fly in the air, swim underwater, make its own fuel from an exploding launch from the water surface inspired by insects and built by white coats in the Wiss Institute at Harvard University. It's a micro drone, only a few millimeters in size. Making a small machine is challenging enough, but but to build something that can move across different medium like air and water is even more so. 
This is because water is a thousand times denser than air, which means a drone requires a different wing speed to operate. RoboFlee flaps its wings at a frequency of 220 to 300 hertz in the air and 9 to 13 hertz in the water. And for a small machine, RoboBee carries a lot of equipment on board, including gas chamber, electrolytic plate, sparker, and buoyant outriggers. Why gas chamber and electrolyte plates, you ask? There's to produce the oxygen, hydro-oxygen fuel it requires to explode out of the water just like rockets. It's not quite ready yet, but once perfected, RoboBee concept can find application in search and rescue operations, environmental monitoring, monitoring and biological studies. That's going to be quite interesting. Yeah. I'm just thinking, so you increase the size 100-fold? That ought to be interesting. I mean, producing its own fuel? Hmm, yeah. But is, interesting. Is yep. So that does it for Scuba News. It's kind of a light news week. Wasn't a whole lot out there. Let's see, did anybody get any diving in this week? It's been, it's getting dark, so any dive after 5 p.m. is really the beginning of a night dive. Well, it's already a night dive at 5 o'clock. It has been this week. And when we do the, what, the time change, it will be dark. Yes. That's coming up Sunday. Yeah, so take your flashlights for the next one, people. Was there anybody getting out this Thursday, do we know? I heard from one. Yeah, I, I, I know we've, we have club members doing all sorts of different things. I think we have one heading down to Florida. We had one with uh, other things going on. So I just kind of probably a quiet week for diving with a club, which has been rare probably since uh, May. Well, collectively, I think we've had a pretty active year. Uh, you know, Thursday, Thursdays have been pretty well attended until it started getting a little chillier and the, uh, the rain came in and screwed up the river for us. Oh, yeah. yeah it and is. I, know, I don't think it I, stopped raining. No, it's been raining again the last two days and a half. And I know Jim's been doing pretty good carrying people out there to the reef. And I'm still interested to hear if you've got any feedback from uh, the university, if they wanted the, you guys to get any more video or pictures. I'd be curious what's going to happen to that. No one has responded, so I think I'm going to move on and start hitting some other schools and see what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of times it's finding a receptive year at the right time of the year. Yeah. Well, Mac, do you have a dive safety story? Well, we were you know, talking about diving, and here it is getting cold water. So I'm going to say about here's six tips for divers considering cold water diving. And experienced cold-water divers, some of this may seem obvious, so you can feel free to snicker. Uh, The first item is cold-water diving requires additional weight. And people say, well, why is that? That's because divers use thicker, generally, and more buoyant wetsuits or dry suits in cold water, which generally requires the use of more weight. So anticipate the appropriate amount of weight for thick exposure protection if you're changing something. Thicker hoods, thicker gloves. Also, in cold water, anticipate the impact that very cold water may have on your normal breathing pattern. Some initial cold water divers are not able to exhale fully at the surface to begin their descent, and that can also affect needing an extra bit of weight to get you down. And we all know, though, you don't want to go too heavy. Uh, The next item is gearing up for cold water diving. And we're going to talk about this next week when I talk about uh, wetsuit diving and in the ice. But plan ahead. Because once you're wearing thicker gloves or thicker mitts, it becomes much more difficult to make small adjustments, such as tucking in your mask skirt under the hood and disconnecting snaps, especially small button type. So you got to gear up appropriately and get used to thicker gloves again. The third one we talked about will be preparing for the initial cold water shock. Now, transitioning or divers transitioning to cold water should be prepared for the short interval shock of entering cold water not necessarily on their body per se, but their head or face. For the first few moments in the cold water, a diver may feel he cannot breathe easily. This is a psychological reaction, physiological reaction, known as that mammalian diving reflex, and it's perfectly normal when a person's head is submerged in cold water. It'll pass. So key item there is some divers just float on the surface with their face in the water until they feel more comfortable and control their breathing. It usually takes less than 20 seconds of doing this to to activate yourself. And that's not a bad idea. Uh, If a diver feels cold, his air consumption rate will increase. When a diver's body becomes cold, it burns more calories to keep warm. 
you'll use more oxygen, his breathing rate will increase. If you become very cold, you'll shiver, and your air consumption increases even more from the extra work of shivering. So thicker wetsuits, dry suits, as well as the extra weight necessary to compensate for this thick or thicker exposure protection will increase your drag, and thus your air consumption rate will go up again. So solution is to wear the proper exposure protection and exit the water when you begin to get chilled, not after you're chilled, because now you're starting to know another aspect of hypothermia. Uh, key one for everybody, of course, we talked about it last week, is use regulators appropriate for cold water. It's vital to use a regulator approved for cold water diving. <clears throat> Excuse me. As the first stage of a non-cold regulator may freeze due to normal cooling from gas expansion combined with a chilly water, causing a free throw. <coughs> Excuse me, darn. Divers uh, should also be sure to review the standard protocols to avoid pausing in a regulator free flow uh, when diving, even with a cold water regulator, which means avoid purging the regulator. Uh, if you're inflating your BC, be careful, or if you're even inflating your dry suit from your regulator or from your first stage. That can also shock it into a little more airflow, more sensitive to freezing up. Uh, these actions may increase demand on the regulator first stage and may trigger free flow. Uh, many divers have issue with their octopus regulators, especially in moving water like rivers where they bleed. Well, some of the regulators will bleed because you got the pressure of the of the river against them and they little burp once in a while. If you do that, that can then turn into a free flow. So you got to watch with your uh, your octopuses. And the other one would be mass clearing in cold water. Key item there is be prepared. Uh, many divers will find the shock of cold water on the face makes exhaling to clear a mask difficult in cold water. And this reaction can be overcome with practice, but divers must experience the cold water shock a few times before they learn to clear the mask easily. And being able to clear the mask in cold water is essential to being safe on cold water dives. If you've never done this, practice clearing your mask in shallow water of very cold water. And you do it until you become accustomed to the sensation of cold water on your face and that you can clear your mask easily. If you can't do it, you know, when you're in five-foot water leaning over, you're not going to do it at 20 or 30. Uh, and again, why do you dive in winter? Well, winter diving, especially up here, up north, often provide the diver with much better visibility since there are no boaters and less runoff to mess up the, mess up the visibility. So with proper gear, proper preparation, divers shouldn't be cold even in cold water. When it's done correctly, cold water diving should be comfortable and equally as enjoyable. Any comments? I, I think those are all good tips. Yep, all good points. Makes sense. Well, next week then we're going to talk about preparation for ice diving in a wetsuit. And I think all of us have had experience in that, mm -hmm. especially you that have a very leaky wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a mostly wet wetsuit. Yeah, you give a new meaning to diving wet. <laughs> wow. Well, or you have in the past. It's, it's, it's all for a good cause. Uh, to get in the water. That reminds me. I can't remember. Was that uh, Kevin the other day that mentioned about a um, medical survey? They were looking for young divers up to like 25? Yes. Do you remember, Jim? Can you, can, you, yeah, can you elaborate on that one? I can't remember all the details. Um, I read through it, but since I'm kind of a little beyond 25, it didn't register home with me, but I think they were looking for people for full surveys, you know, for exams. Um, not quite sure exactly what they were looking for. Okay, I just remembered when you said that. It's for the year. Oh, was it for the years? Yes, it was for the years, and they were going to basically give you a good head checkup, and they were trying to find out about how the water and stuff affected you, especially cold water, and that related to something I read last week where Dan did uh, some surveys on a group of people, and they're looking for more. They're looking for dive clubs to do this, that they gave cardiac testing before they went diving and afterwards to see the effects that that had, meaning dressing, diving, getting out, exertions, and swimming, because they made the gear waterproof to wear under your suit. 
so they could check you as you're getting suited up in the dive and after the dive and undressed. Now, that's one that I'd be interested in participating oh, in. Yep, because it was young through old. It was not just one age group. And I think the one I looked at was majority of 50-plus, and I'd really like to hear the results. And the people that were doing it was on dive trips, so they had a group like 15. Mm. And the club never goes on that, but I, I'm looking forward to hearing what they said. Part of it was is even when you take your time as an older person, putting on your dry suit or wetsuit, and you think your heart rate's going to go up, well, it certainly does, and your blood pressure. And then they say that feeling of relaxation when you get into the water ain't happening. So I think, Jim, or Jim, uh, Darren, you talked about that last week, that when you dress and you get in the water, you feel much more relaxed and you think you're breathing and stuff better. Yeah. Yeah. I, ain't I, happening. No. The, the well, I, I do. I, I was I was trying to figure that out after Darren said that, and it's like I feel comfortable down there. You know, I feel good. I'm out there in my grubby mode, and I'm not thinking everything but grubbing. I feel good. I don't monitor my heart rate underwater, but I know just watching the videos that I take and listening to the sounds in the background, my breathing rate drops to about ten to twelve breaths per minute, yes. unless I'm swimming hard. Yeah, but. In just floating around the wreck and, you know, easy kicks or drifting with current or whatever, my breathing rate's 10 to 12 a minute. Yeah. I thought normal breathing was 10 to 12 a minute. 16 to 20. Yeah. Oh, wow. I must be a little ahead of the curve there. Yeah, because that, that's what I was thinking because I, I always feel calm. You get about 5, 10 feet down heading down that anchor line and... It's just like a Zen experience, and mm-hmm. I don't feel like I move a lot. But uh, yeah, my heart rate was was higher than uh, my resting would be on the surface. But I feel a heck of a lot better. Well, the funny part, I, I got one of those chest ones you get for exercise. You put mm-hmm. on, and then I can look at my wrist watch. And I was curious, like when I jump out of an airplane, what happens? <laughs> That's got to be and- like a rabbit. Well, I, it is really is a little scary because as you get older, your heart rate for your top end is a lot lower. Uh huh. A lot lower. <laughs> Enough that I'm looking at that watch saying, son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, seriously, I mean, I was over my threshold. But once I got out of the, out of the airplane, my heart rate went down. Yeah. Well, it's like, I well, thought that was supposed to go well. Oh, no, that's, gravity. that's gravity. That's why your heart rate's going down. Oh, here. I'm way less than that. Okay. And, and you're falling, so you're going from a high altitude to a low altitude, and that makes your heart rate go down. Does it, does it do anything to the watch I'm wearing? Well, the, um, watch, the watch will go down with you. Yeah, no. Yeah, my dive no, watch, but yeah. I, Mac, yeah. I guarantee if you don't open your chute, your heart rate will, will stop completely. You're probably correct on that. Actually, not probably. <laughs> it might go up a little bit before so before you, it does stop, but it'll stop. Uh, the peak right there at the end. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, looking at this Dan information when it comes out, and I'd love to be part of that thing. I really would. As long as they didn't say, my God, you shouldn't be diving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? You lived this long with that? My doctor says as long as I can walk relatively comfortable <laughs> with my tanks and stuff on in the water and out the same way without having to go, <sighs> I, I should be okay. Well, I've told you guys the story of when I was working with my doubles, right? First training with my doubles, I was having some chest pain uh, when I after the dives. So I went to my doctor and asked him about it. Um, said, I, you know, I think it's time we do a stress test again. And he asked me why, and I told him. And he said, let me get this straight. You're carrying doubles with all your dive gear. You're doing a 30 to 40-minute dive out in the lake, and then you're coming out along the beach, carrying your doubles, walking up the hill to your truck. And how far is the walk? Yeah, you know, maybe 50 yards. And how high is the hill? Yeah, maybe 20 feet. And you feel a little chest pain and you're winded when you get back to your truck, right? Yeah. And he said, you don't need a stress test. You just had one every time you walked out of the water going back up to the truck. Uh, so, did he, did he suggest you see a psychiatrist? 
No, he knows it's too late for that. <laughs> he did tell me, though, on my last checkup that I had, he walked in and said, Jim, I've got two options for you. One, you increase your life insurance so your wife is taken care of. Or two, you change lifestyle. All this wine, women, and song is going to kill you. <laughs> and I said, Doc, that's an easy decision. I'm just going to give up singing. <laughs> that increases your lifespan by, what, a third anyway? Oh, I, I th it sounds good to me, yeah. Yeah. So I, I gave up singing. And we're thankful for that. <laughs> <laughs> now you wish I'd give up telling bad jokes. <laughs> no, that's what we like. Yeah, it's kind of a tradition. That's a freebie for a night. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug, Jim? Well, there's a lot of divers in the northern hemisphere who are probably winding down their dive season. And you really shouldn't. You can dive year-round. The water is still there. It's just a little bit colder, so you've got to get warmer and take advantage of the tips Matt's going to give us next week. But if you are going to get that dive gear put away, Please make sure you give it a really good, I'm going to say a soaking. Too many times I see dive gear come into the shop that has been either used in pools where there's a lot of chlorine or has been in salt water, and it's gotten rinsed down, but it hasn't gotten soaked. Uh, rinsing is good to get the salt off the surface, but those nooks and crannies and cracks and crevices... If you don't soak your gear underwater to dilute that salt, it just sits there, and you'll be amazed at how cruddy and nasty and green it's going to look next spring when you break it out to go to use it. So give everything a really good soaking. Blow it out with good dry air. Um, tap all your openings, uh, especially openings that those spiders like to get into that Darren can tell you about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, store this gear properly. Remember, it is life safety gear. So take care of it, and it'll take care of you. Is there anything wrong with, if, if you absolutely know you're not going to dive until next spring, is there any reason why you would not want to bring that in and have it serviced now? No. I mean... Six months on a O-ring or something is not an, an issue at all. And I know our shop and probably many shops have reduced service rates in the wintertime. Uh, we're not as busy. We're not selling a lot of gear in the winter. And that labor income from doing service really helps to carry us through the slow time of the year. Um, we're also, as I said, not as busy, so... You know, we always try to do a thorough job on regulators and all the work we do, but when there's 10 piled up, um, you might get a little more rushed than when there's only one regulator for you to fix the day. Jim, talking about uh, your dive gear, making sure it's rinsed and fully dry, do you recommend on a dry suit leaving it stretched out, hung by the foot or feet, or rolled? And when you're talking a wetsuit, do you recommend holding it, rolling it, or laying it flat? Did we lose him? I don't know. You still there, Jim? I think we must have lost him. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's, it's like dead space here. Yeah. Well, that can be a question for next week. <laughs> yes. We can. Oh, yeah, we, we did. He's trying to come back. Yeah, I know there's some debate and discussion on that, and I thought yeah. we could find out from preferences. And if there's people out there in the audience that like to tell us their preference and why, I'd be curious. I do know that uh, a lot of rubber gear, you don't want to store any place that's going to be exposed to ozone, for example, because mm -hmm. that will really screw up rubber gear for sure. But I, I was sort of curious. I know I've been rolling my dry suit when I'm not using it for months at a time. I have boxes I can almost lay out my suit so I don't put any creases in it. Mm -hmm. That's what I was trying to avoid because then I make a weak spot. Yeah. 
So I'm curious what, what people do out there. I've never seen an article on it, really. No. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the first trick, uh, if we're just talking about a dry suit, would be uh, to get it dry. Yeah. I mean, I'm back. Sorry about that. Oh, oh. Well, did did you hear Max's question, or did you drop before I, that? I heard, yeah, no, I heard Max's question. I was trying to answer it, and I apparently lost my internet connection. Um, so we'll let you edit this stuff out. Oh, of course, highly edited. Right. <laughs> uh, to start again on Max's answer, the uh, I prefer rolling wetsuits. If you fold them, you're going to put a crease in it. But if you loosely roll it, you're less likely to form those creases and create problems. Zipped or unzipped? Uh, for wetsuits, uh, I like to leave it unzipped. You know, definitely whack the zipper before you do anything, run it up and down a few times. But uh, for wetsuit, if it's got a zipper in it, I would unzip it because that leaves it open and doesn't force it again. You know, like you're forcing a fold. Leaving it open lets it lay the way the material wants to lay. For dry suits, that's a toss-up. Uh, we always leave them hanging in the shop, but that's because we're trying to display them to sell them. You know, I think if you talk to the manufacturers, they store dry suits rolled up waiting to be sold, you know, in packaging. So, again, I would prefer to roll it and store it you know, if the zipper's open, um, that's less stress on the zipper area. It lets the material lay where it wants to lay. And just rolling it loosely with, I always roll mine with the feet in, but just roll it loosely, put it in a bag, uh, and just make sure it's someplace where the mice won't get attracted to it. Uh, you'd be amazed where mice will want to build nests, and they usually end up eating and processing whatever they've chewed on to build their nest right there where it's it's laying. So unless you want to find a hole in your suit and a pile of chewed up material, um, make sure it's secured in an area where mice cannot get to it. I know when I'm using mine actively, I store it feet. I hang it by the feet because I got the, you know, where you put the booties in the feet part. Yep. Yeah, if you have it. if you have hard boots in it, yes. If you've That's got a sock, you know, then again you're putting a lot of stress or a lot of stretch in that one area. Right. Uh, but hard boots, yeah. I mean, you've got a good solid surface there to let it hang. Um, yeah. it's the other drain. way too, as I got my I got a suit dryer for both wet and dry. Mm -hmm. So on that, I put the the long pipes or the legs with the extension mm -hmm. in my booties, put them on my dryer. And I let them hang there until, you know, three or four days. Because even though they're not wet, any dampness sure as heck gets out. Yeah. And by hanging it down, everything comes out the arms anyway. Well, I literally took my wetsuit, my dry suit, uh, put it in my front-loading washer last week, and ran it through a delicate cycle in the washer. I mean, it was more than just rinsing it off. And I didn't stand there and have somebody scrub me with a brush, you know, like a decontamination. That's really what I needed. But I just ran the washer, on front-load washer, gentle cycle, warm water, very mild soap, ran that through. Uh, and then I rinsed it out real well, rinsed the inside of it out. And as you did, I hung it upside down, feet up, on a dryer made out of PVC pipe and a bathroom blower fan. Yep. And just let it sit there for uh, two to three days. I just let it blow on it to, to dry it all out because it was getting pretty uh, odiferous on the inside of it. Now, you did that with your dry suit? I did that with my dry suit, yes. Okay. I have done the same thing with my wetsuit on that delicate cycle. Mm -hmm. And I put the, you know, it used to be that frog stuff you could get to put in yep. to make your suit. Yeah. Or sink the stink stuff. or some of the other oh, stuff yeah. that's out there. I've used there. a bunch. Yeah, it does work. It yep. It's amazing how much better it feels and smells when you put it on. Yeah, baby shampoo too. I mean, you we we yeah, you uh, might yeah. think I have stock in baby shampoo company because baby shampoo works great. I mean, how many times have we talked about the all the different uses for baby shampoo? You know, for lubrication and everything else, and it works great. 
to clean, gently clean, and deodorize your wetsuit, your boots, your gloves, you know, all that stuff. You know, one key thing with wetsuits and dry suits especially, or if you've got the thermal garments like uh, Polar Tech or any of that wicking garment, do not use fabric softener that interferes with the the materials in the garments. So, you know, just gentle soap, warm water, and good drying. And I second that good drying part. And if anybody wants, I think maybe eventually we'll put up the plans for different ones that you can build from PVC mm-hmm. that are great for your boots and your gloves because those, I think, get the stinkiest you can get. Yep. Yeah. Because the boots are a pain in the butt. They're really clean. Mm-hmm. And with a dryer like this, and it is not a problem to, to wash them really good, put them on that dryer, the next morning they are dry. Yep. And, you know, just snow boots and skiing boots and other things like that, you can use these dryers for that kind of stuff also. Yeah, you can repurpose yeah, them. Yeah. Now, you, yes. you, yeah, and we, you know, we use them for that. You know, dive gear in the summertime and snowing or snowmobiling or snowmobiling or, you know, winter sport activities in the wintertime. Yeah. And we, we mentioned how bad ozone is for dive gear. I've heard the, a variety of recommendations for these blowers, for these homemade uh, drying racks. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm curious what you've heard. <laughs> well, I've, I've heard that certain motor types generate ozone. Mm-hmm. And, and so that I've heard some people have used uh, uh, bathroom exhaust fans. Yeah, they've made an assembly with that, and in uh, uh, in hopes that that wouldn't happen. Because, but I but I'm not sure. I haven't seen anybody do any studies, so I just wondered if there was a, a rule of thumb as to a particular motor source or type of blower that would be uh, good for dive gear. Uh, I really don't know from the ozone perspective. I've made mine with the bathroom exhaust fans because they move quite a bit of air. They're 110 volt or you know standard AC electrical, so you plug them in and away it goes. Uh, and it's a relatively small motor, so I can't see that it would produce much ozone. Doesn't burn much power, but it moves a, enough air to inflate the suit. You know, when when I put it on there, um, what I try to do with mine is put. I, I tried it a little different this time. I ran the arms. I ran the the pipe through the arms down to the feet. And it bunched up a little bit around the arms, the sleeves, but I was surprised how much the suit blew up um, before it started coming out of the neck seal and draining when it was uh, fully inflated. So there was mm-hmm. definitely, you know, a little bit of positive pressure inside the suit, stretching it outward, which helps it to dry too. Yeah. So that wow. worked. That worked great that way. I think I'm going to continue to do that. I'll just have to make a couple more extension pipes to get it a little longer because by the time you take the suit and extend another two and a half or three feet for the arms off the shoulders you need to get it a little taller yeah mine sits you know six feet tall plus uh, i use a bathroom vent fan 15 bucks the housing comes with it easy to mm-hmm. use a little pvc it's there you don't have to add any heat all you want the airflow yep. that's yep. the other one if you've got it in your basement your basement's going to be cool enough. It's just they're warm enough to get it going through it. And, you know, anything above 50 degrees is going to be fine because it's going to take the moisture out, mm-hmm. especially during the winter because, you know, it just sucks up the, the moisture. You, you want that. Yeah, but one thing about not- basements, don't put it in the utility room because of your blower motor and your hot water heater and all the other ozone and chemical things that are in the laundry, not the, so much the laundry room, but often you found in a, a utility room or heater room. You know, put it someplace else if you can. Yeah. Not in an enclosed space with those items because mine is in the basement. All of that's in the basement, but it's not enclosed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people, you know, you stick it in the utility room where it's out of sight, out of mind because you don't want to have it sitting in your recreation room making noise and looking nasty so but the problem is when you put it in that utility room you know it's like leaving it in the garage with running vehicles that exhaust is going to impact it oh yeah 
Well, I think we are getting towards the end of the show, unless you guys have anything else that you would like to cover. Yeah, we've stretched it as much as I think we can. <laughs> well, Kevin is not here. I know he's got uh, some trying times and uh, thoughts with Kevin. Yeah. Uh, so I will bring up the aspect. Librarians are our friends. Uh, don't forget to use the resources. They are wonderful places, especially in the winter, to spend the time if you can't be diving. Start researching some of your local ponds, lakes, and areas, you know, your rivers. You'd be surprised what you can find and great places to dive. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of maps, a lot of reference materials. Librarians help you out a lot. Yep. They are your friends. That's for sure. Yep. And uh, if you want to keep tabs on what we're doing, you can follow us on our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Also have the mudclub.scubaobsessed.com website. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed on Twitter at scuba obsessed. Uh, and we would like to, as we get to the end of the year, ask for your assistance in keeping us on the air. So, uh, we are largely listener supported. In fact, I don't think we've, we've had a sponsor of any sort or means. So, uh, we can use that your support. Uh, head on to our website and click on a Patreon link. Get over to our Patreon page and, you know, any dollar amount will certainly help. Uh, $3 or more gets you access, to, early access to the show notes for the episode so you can follow along. We have a lot of expenses coming up that uh, include hosting and software and other uh, activities. And uh, we, I also have to apologize. I, I was backed up on getting articles edited. Uh, so we have a big slug. So this will be a triple week. So I had uh, two back issues and, and this one. So uh, if you got a trip planned for the holidays, uh, we should have plenty of listen, of scuba listening material for you. So are you guys ready? Ready. Okay. These aren't uh, the typical ones. They're a bunch of one-liners. So we'll, we'll, we'll run through them at least in, until we can't take it anymore. So here we go. I tried to catch some fog I missed. When chemists die, they bury him. Jokes about German sausage are the worst. The soldier who survived mustard gas and pepper spray is now a seasoned veteran. I know a guy who's addicted to brake fluid. He says he can stop any time. How does Moses make his tea? He brews it. I stayed up all night to see where the sun went. Then it dawned on me. The girl said she recognized me from the vegetarian club but I had never met her before. I'm reading a book about anti-gravity. I can't put it down. I did a theatrical performance about puns. It was a play on words. They told me I had type A blood, but it was a type O. This dyslexic man walks into a bra. I didn't like my beard at first, then it grew on me. A cross-eyed teacher lost her job because she couldn't control her pupils. When you get a bladder infection... Call recording has stopped. Please, please. I think we lost about six jokes ago. I like some of those. I like some of them too, but we need to save some of them for next week. Savor them, okay? Savor them. Yeah. Let let them brew. So, so part two will be next week. So, on that note, go out there and get wet and stay safe. And remember, no walking octopuses for octopuses, octopi, octopuses. Anyhow, none of those eight-legged things were harmed in the making of tonight's show. <laughs> we didn't hurt them making the show. At least with eight arms, they could cover their ears, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like after, after about the ninth joke, though, then they they didn't have enough. That, that, I'm just, I just made myself ask a question. Do octopus have ears? 
Oh God! Do they hear sound? Oh, that's another one of those. I wish you hadn't have asked me that. <laughs> no, what? Save that for next week. Hear that? There's the headline for the show, Darren. Do octopi, <laughs> octopi have ears? <laughs> that, that's one of those often thought about but seldom asked questions and, of nature. Inquiring minds want to yeah. know. It's like if a horse had eight legs, would it run twice as far or twice as fast? <laughs> if a duck had horns, would it still quack? Yeah, I got to think about that one. What? <laughs> <laughs> the other ones have some semblance of something, but what? Ah, <laughs> uh, must be the bourbon. I was going to say, have we been drinking? <laughs> Not together. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs>